Welcome everyone to the Daredevil podcast by Fantastic Geek. We are the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me is a guy so dedicated to the show that he always pays for dinner with the ladies. He doesn't even need to ask or whatever. It's Pete. Hello, Pete. I want to kill you for dying. The Daredevil podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 305, The Perfect Game, is brought to you by Donovan and Partners Audiobooks. The perfect distraction to the mountain of information your high-profile client sifts through to find a suitable scapegoat. Well, Pete, we've made it through the weekend. Netflix has not canceled any more Marvel shows that we know of. Uh, This amidst us getting through this season of Daredevil, which continues to be spectacular. Yes, sigh of relief right now. Guarded, Matt. Um, I I would say we're, we're not at red alert, but we're at like at least black alert. Uh, you know, uh, longtime listeners get the reference, uh, but we'll see. Uh, there's been a lot of talk increasingly about Netflix corporate culture suddenly under the microscope, as well as, uh, the debt that they currently operate out of. Um, they did cancel a show late Friday into Saturday, Matt, but it was not a Marvel Netflix show thank god but american vandal uh two seasons and done being shopped elsewhere to my knowledge no netflix uh canceled original has yet to pop up at another outlet they they were always the catch-all true and i think well first of all i have some real specific thoughts about american vandal the first season did not end in a way that inspired me to watch the second season even though a it's tongue-in-cheek and b it's meant to be an anthology style but behind the scenes it's a cbs studios show so while it was a netflix original by way of the you know you you click on it and goes boom netflix it, it was not made by netflix if you will netflix kind of bought it off the rack so that flexibility there but all of these cancellations making it clear pete that the big netflix feeding trough that also serves as a parachute for the show you love that's now gone. That seems to be coming to an end connected with or separate of who knows some of the money issues going on behind the scenes. Very interesting, particularly as it applies to a Marvel Netflix. Order in the court. One more outburst and I'll hold you in contempt. Let's enter the evidence into the record and give the devil his due. The episode opens with Dex at home, keeping a fastidious existence and looking at one picture on the way out, that of a group from the Brooklyn Suicide Prevention Center, with both him and a redheaded Julie. Cut to the taxi from last episode being pulled out of the river. Then Donovan telling Fisk that there is no corpse. The kingpin reiterates that Matt threatened him and Vanessa. The FBI arrives, and Donovan talks about the need for the government to start honoring their end of the bargain returning certain belongings, but Fisk cuts him off. Fisk notes the FBI has sacrificed men to be here, and he's willing to share more. He names the name of a man who has fiddled with the courts on his behalf, Matthew Murdoch. The credits show that the episode is written by Tanya Kong, who is a veteran of Arrow and Justice and Political Animals, and has a Juris Doctor degree from the University of Washington, and has been admitted to the State Bar of California, Hawaii, and the Ninth Circuit of Appeals. 
and directed by Julian Holmes. He a veteran of Iron Fist this season, Beowulf in the past, and a ton of British stuff, including MI5. Back to the episode, we cut to Dex out for a friendly run, following Julie for her run, too. With the FBI, it is making a move, entering Matt's apartment to find it empty, aside from the abandoned, wet clothes that show he's been here recently. Elsewhere, Karen is out for a drink and a chance to run to Felix Manning, who she can keep off the record if he wants. She can offer him everything. When she stops talking, it turns out he knows everything about her, her parents' names, their home, her whole background. He doesn't fix problems. He makes them disappear. On the street, she gets the sense she's being followed, and then she is, with the FBI surrounding her and taking her, specifically to Matt's apartment with Nadim there. He's asking the questions now. Why has she been paying his bills, hoping for him to return? Her answers are short and terse, a lot of no's and brief replies about not working for Fisk. Nadim catches her. Nelson and Murdoch worked for CGI, which is now a known front for Fisk. She amends her answers. They never knowingly worked for Fisk. Then she's asking the questions. Felix Manning, Red Lion, Van Corp, any of that ring a bell? Who owns the presidential hotel? Is it the convict on the top floor? Turns out Karen Page asks better questions. Back to Fisk, Donovan has a box of paperwork. He'll wait while Fisk reads, and reads the psychiatric records of Benjamin Dex Pointdexter. In Fisk's mind's eye, he sees the scene of young Dex throwing a ball against the wall with such accuracy that he's putting a hole in that brick wall. A kindly man from the Lindhurst Home for Boys has gotten him a new glove, and Dex keeps striking out the opposition. His hat has a bullseye. The sparse redress of the penthouse set works perfectly for the visualization of this testimony, testimony which ends with Dex throwing a ball off the fence to hit the coach in the head. Young Dex wasn't sad about it. After all, Coach Bradley was a jerk because he didn't let Dex do what he wanted to do. He did take out the coach on purpose. The therapist notes on paper that there are psychopathic tendencies in the boy. Time for him to learn some empathy. Years go by and the therapist is dying, presumably of lung cancer. She's been dreading their last session. Therapist Mercer is someone Dex wants to kill since he's being abandoned by her cancer. He ends up working at the suicide prevention hotline, going down the checklist perfectly, until he notes he's alone. Then he talks guns with the caller. Why use the gun on himself when his a-hole stepdad is? Then Dex snaps back, overheard, and the perfect help. Fisk sees this, and sees, too, Dex's infatuation with the redhead. The artful flashback is over, and Fisk monologues that the city needs a new villain, and Fisk may have found him. At the hotel bar, Dex is meeting the new cocktail waitress, Julie. Didn't he used to work at the Brooklyn Suicide Hotline? Small world, it's her first day at the bar. Later, they have a jolly dinner together. Small world that they both happen to run along the FDR Drive. They talk about family. She had support, he didn't. He lets details slip, knowing about her time at the Hotline, dancing ballet, not having a dog. He grabs her arm and she pulls loudly away, the camera turning on an angle as it closes in on Dex. Later, he's an angry boy who's been told no. He punches a hole in his perfect white wall, reddening his perfect white shirt with blood. He rages, throwing things, including a knife into the picture of Julie, into her face. 
at Franklin Meats, Brother Theo is offering some of these meats for whoever votes for Foggy. It's a violation of election law, but kindly old lady will still vote for him. Agent Nadine comes in, asking for six subs, and when was the last time Foggy saw Matt Murdock? Privately, Foggy shares that he saw Matt two nights ago, but didn't get any criminal information, and Nadim feels confident that Foggy is complicit in the crimes that uh, the FBI isn't charging anyone with this time. Just like that, Nadim has turned from story hero to story villain. Later, Karen is at Franklin Meets, feeling guilty for telling the FBI too much. She invokes attorney-client privilege, and Foggy takes a few bucks to legally seal the deal. She fesses up that the reason James Wesley disappeared is because she killed him. Somewhere else, earlier, a bloodied Matt Murdock walks in. The telltale windows shows he's entered through the upper loft into his own home. His clothes are wet and bloodied. We're in the past, and he's barely survived the taxi crash. A bit later, he hears the FBI coming. From the roof, he escapes them and hears that there's a citywide bolo from Matthew Murdock. Jackson, you're already badgering the witness. Well, what do you want me to give him a testimonial dinner? Who brought the heat in the Hell's Kitchen in this episode? Pete, on the notes here, the last one on the list is Dex question mark. I'd like to start with Dex. Um, acting like a creepy creeperton for sure in this episode. Also uh raging out enough to put holes in the wall and throw things as he has a little she said no to me, temper tantrum. Um, Pete, I feel like Dex all of a sudden, though I, though I feel like I can understand Kingpin as a, uh, as a uh, real estate mogul who's actually a terrible, terrible force in this world, I feel like Dex is now also the face of a certain kind of lonely man rage. This episode and the hyper unique way that it unfolds, um, I, I think creates some very uh, unusual questions in what we have to consider about Dex, his makeup, um, who he is now, who he was. Um, there is no denying the way that he treats Julie at the conclusion of this episode is inappropriate. His stalking of her and, and that word is used by him toward her toward what, her yes what are you stalking me and then of course he makes the mistake you know oh you don't have a dog wait how do you yeah like <laughs> super creepy zero denying this um and matt who too has not wanted to kill their little league coach uh, after being taken out of a, a perfect game. Um, but there is an underlying sympathy in this episode for this character. The diagnosis, courtesy of his psychologist who passes away, the, the plan in place to keep him walking the right path, um, if there's an emblematic scene in this episode, it's in the, I believe it's a 16 minute, it's a 14 minute black and white sequence start to finish. Okay. Uh, where 
um, Fisk is reading and, and viewing all of this. And we can talk about that in just a little bit, but in, um, in this sequence, the flashback, it's a flash forward at that point to the time he worked at the suicide prevention line where he takes the call. Julie comes over, makes physical contact with him, uh, encourages him and then walks away and he goes dark on the suicidal guy ready to encourage him to take out the, uh, was a father or a stepfather stepfather. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Julie comes back and the good in him returns. So he is a super complicated character. I, I don't think it's a black and white. There is good in him, good in him drawn out by others that the true North that his, his physician, uh, points to, but super influenced and again, stated in the script in the episode by other people. I, I agree that that is presented. I find it interesting that we are, we are ultimately prescribing, uh, different, uh, sources of blame or, or, or perhaps that's, but that's not the best way to put it, but that's how I'll put it. Um, I will agree. He has all sorts of mitigating factors that we can be sympathetic to. And if you want to blame society, that's that's fine interestingly his therapist mercer she does that too in the moment where she writes down a that he has uh is a uh, psychopathic tendencies after learning that he killed somebody on purpose what's her what's what's her and if she's symbolizing society what's her excuse oh man you're all there alone no one's ever taught you that is true, but at what point is someone going to ask him to be responsible for himself? And I, I think that's a, an excellent point, the responsibility of actions. I mean, Matt, we are having a conversation about people being influenced by others to do things. Um, but again, where where is personal responsibility? Influence matters. But where is that personal responsibility as well? And where I love his presentation in this episode is there really are the, the, the two sides there. Because in truth, it's not entirely his responsibility, nor is it entirely that he was let down by society. It's a combination of, of, of the two. And with all these things in the news lately of, you know, oh, it wasn't me. She made me did it because, do it because how she was dressed, or it wasn't me. Uh, Facebook gave me the impression to vote this way, or it wasn't me, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. Maybe I'm leaning a little bit too hard on Dex to say, hey, have some responsibility here. Uh, I will grant him he has the presence of mind after his little you know, rage-out session, uh, which I'm not excusing by calling little. If anything, I'm trying to belittle him. Uh, at least it's recognizing, hey, I need to get to... I need to get to a place of stability. It's with tapes. It's kind of re reviewing those skills and whatnot. But I was blown away in this episode that they took the time to kind of have this discussion about a character like this, because unfortunately, Pete, there's characters like this in our world too. There really is. And at the time that I watched this episode, we were in a less complicated world. And, uh, a couple days later, 
we're in a much more complicated world in terms of what someone um, takes in as influence and then goes out and acts upon. Um, and again, the, the words that we use matter. I, I'm a free speech guy. As a former full-time journalist, you're, you're not going to find a bigger believer in what we can say. But at the same time, you have responsibility for what you say, what comes out of your mouth. You are ultimately responsible for. Um, and then if someone goes and acts on things and then what was direction as opposed to what was suggestion or what was just poor influence or what was stupid to say and someone took literally or or what have you. I mean, it, it is a can of worms ultimately. Um, but control what you can control. And that is what comes out of your mouth. And of course, in the episode, we, we get this flashback by way of Fisk reading it. And we can certainly turn our attention to, to talk to Fisk now by way of saying it would have been so much easier for everybody involved if it was just like, all right, Vincent, come on in today. You know what? We're not going to do an eight o'clock start. We'll do like a 10 o'clock start. Okay, and we're just going to have you like pretend to read these papers. We're going to get like some coverage and whatnot. And then, you know what? We'll hit the old we'll hit the old craft services table in the afternoon. We'll get you in a booth and you can uh, not even a booth. We're going to have the other guy read it, the voiceover of his own file. And then you can just go home for the day. Morning of work as you pretend to read stuff. No, to to include him in every scene, to have him sometimes in focus, sometimes not to restage that whole penthouse as an abstract uh, backbone to show much of Dex's childhood was just a brilliant, brilliant move. It was really, really interesting. I don't want to fully discuss it um, in, in this segment to talk about our um, defendants. I'd much rather save that for the sidebar next. Um, but what it allows Fisk to do to go through this box of materials to view chronologically the life of Special Agent Poindexter and to pinpoint the weaknesses so that he can make him a scapegoat and spur him to whatever action he intends to. Let's turn our attention now to Felix Manning. And and Pete, I don't mean to take pot shots at the press at large, but to think how Karen goes into that scene, guns a-blazing with the power of the press and the ability to shine a light, you know, the responsibility, first of all, to get a quote, and then maybe to shine a light on his name or, you know, withhold it because uh, it's going to be off the record as we continue to find the truth of the capital T. And he just sits there and listens and listens and listens to this yeah. really well-intentioned monologue. And then for him to say, no, no, this world that you live by of rules and truth with a capital T, I actually make things disappear and I don't live by those rules. Yeah. He's not a fixer. I'm calling him a problem magician, uh, because of his ability to make them go away for his clients. Um, I find it a little over hand of the writer, the idea that a reporter um, with, you know, we've, we've discussed before Karen Page's meteoric rise. At, at this point, she's, you know, a, a veteran journalist. 
um, believable within the scope and the the time um, passage in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, but that a reporter would learn the power of information from a source, it felt a little much. Uh, that said, I really enjoyed the little bit that we've got. We've heard so much about Manning to this point, and he's been moving Vanessa around the world. Um, Fisk seemed a little vexed with him the last time his name came up, and here to see this guy relaxed, reclined, cool as a cucumber when Karen comes in, like you say, uh, ready to... Uh, to rip him up and just completely disarms her. Pete last on the list. And it, it pains me to bring this up, but the rules of the, the, the rules of how fiction works requires it to be. So Pete agent Nadim, the, the, the guy that we have felt so much sympathy for in terms of his personal life, in terms of the, the, the shortcomings that have been thrust upon him professionally, he now has moved in that one scene at Nelson Meets. He's moved from an aide to the protagonist to to an antagonist versus our hero. Again, I, I'm not so sure here. Look at the manipulation that's gone on. Um, and these are sidebar discussions to have. I'll preview this one. Hey, Matt, you know who helped me done the crime? It was this person. Oh, oh, all right. We'll go investigate him, you know, because you said he helped you did the crime. (laughs) Because 100% of the other one thing you told us checked out. Therefore, everything that's 100% must be true. Yeah. There are structural issues with this episode and logical leaps that are a little too far. At the same time, let's be honest about what this genre this is comic book drama uh so you know will allow it but yeah this this is where i struggle with nadim as a uh as a defendant because what's he doing he's running down what he's been told by fisk they're trying to clean things up they're looking for matt um okay we're gonna question foggy and and where it goes until uh foggy ultimately turns that down at the meet the candidate session at the uh deli there how great was that by the way oh that was uh, pete everybody knows that you can't beat nelson meet and now you get to meet a nelson with the nelson meet at the meet your honor may i approach the may i approach the bench it's time to step aside and approach the bench to discuss some off-the-record theories. You be the judge. Pete, I don't know if this is going to be the most complex theory or digging deep question, but towards the end of the episode, over the NYPD radio, there's the announcement for a bolo for one Matthew Murdoch. Pete, do you know what a bolo is? I have to confess, I know what a bolo tie is. I had never heard that acronym before. Uh, I had to look it up too. Pete Bolo stands for Be On The Lookout. Uh, uh, I guess because we can't say, calling our cars, calling our cars, be on the lookout for the daredevil, Matthew Murdoch. 
they don't have time for that, Pete. So, you know, <laughs> the next time you get pulled over for that taillight that's out or whatever, you can just be like, thanks so much, officer. And by the way, Bolo for the bad guys or something. <laughs> well, Matt, let's start with uh, justice for James. You know, James Wesley. You have been mentioning this, not just this season where maybe your your view of the future uh, might have uh, <laughs> might have aided with things, but even last season it was like this is a a loose thread from the first season. Yeah. She took the life of someone and and it wasn't addressed. Now it is addressed both in terms of her guilt and story impact, or at least potential story impact. I'm just amazed that despite the fact, I know we did the number before, Eric Olson is like the fifth showrunner, something like that, one, two, three, four. He's the fifth showrunner for Daredevil. The fact that they've been able to get away with season one and its sequel season, season three, with season two in the middle that addressed some things, also had a villain that became a hero and launched another show kind of unintentionally and dealt with other things and set up defenders to whatever you know degree that it did it's just this amazing kind of zigzag zig of these three seasons yeah if only there was a way to get toby leonard more back as wesley in more than like a headshot so you want more and more I do want more, more as we seek justice for James, but not at the expense of uh, Karen and, and Deborah Ann Wall in terms of, uh, you know, her getting locked up. Although, could, could Karen Page have her own uh, prison hallway breakout beatdown scene? Like, sign me up for that. And or maybe write a uh, – write – Right, like a nonfiction novel, you know, inside these bars or something like that. Pete, they can make a whole show. Hold on. Here's a brilliant idea. They could spin her off and do this is why I'm so smart. Do a Netflix show about women in prison. I got there first, Pete. It's a great idea. <laughs> if only they didn't have two shows worth of characters in the wind right now looking for uh, you know, landing spots. Uh, but it, but it's good. Um, and still want to pitch, uh, Jeff Loeb on, uh, my many, many Turk Barrett, uh, spinoff series. But moving on, Matt, two parter here, Fisk gets this, uh, banker's box of Dex's information from, uh, his attorney Donovan here who just, I'm going to sit over on the side and, and read an audiobook as you go through this man's life, which leads to this highly stylized 14 minute black and white sequence. First of all, I love the lawyerly conceit that he probably doesn't know wink, wink, doesn't know what's in the box donovan does what's or the box? um and then you know he's brought the audiobook takes the chair away so he can look out the window i mean he legitimately can say whether he's on camera or not i know it's attorney time so the cameras are off but he can legitimately say i listened to my audiobook i looked out the window until such time as the meeting ended um it's just such a great touch because it's i mean look he's he's the slimy lawyer that we all love to hate you know, that said, you know, every defendant deserves a lawyer and he's obviously a darn good lawyer. Um, and of a course, darn he's walking good, the line. slimy yes. lawyer. Yes. Okay. Like he, he completely, 
uh, inhabits and and owns that. Um, so let's let's admit, uh, suspend um, disbelief that this lasts more than fourteen minutes of Fisk reading this, uh, listening to these tapes, taking this bird's eye view throughout uh, Dex's formative years and uh, just all of this information. Let's talk about the sequence itself and that they, they put elements of a little league field into this space complete with a really crappy fake mound. Well, I mean, it's only crappy insofar as it's meant to be this abstract reason to, uh, presentation of the real thing. I thoroughly They had a enjoyed... full on scoreboard though, man. Come on. You couldn't you couldn't craft us a pseudo quasi believable pitcher's mound with with some dirt in this uh is it a set? Is it I it's got to be a set. Huh. I had not stopped to consider whether that penthouse is a set or not. It would be logical if it's it would be easier to shoot on if it's a set. However, it might just be a situation of we want to get the skyline. I mean, we've seen other other sets that my or we've seen other locations that in my mind have been in real um penthouses. I think of Joy's hideaway loft thing in uh, in iron fist mm-hmm. um now could it be a big giant green screen or or you know uh it's a backdrop out the window and you put some like blinky lights in there you've put lights in after the fact after the fact with uh computer effects all right maybe but um whether it's a set or not aside i mean i, I felt that it was a good use of the space to hang that scoreboard I mean, you know, if you're a production department, it's no big deal to crank one of those out and put the wiring behind the scenes or it's battery operated if it's hanging off the the, the staircase or whatever it might be. I preferred the fact that that backdrop, or pardon me, that the pitcher's mound looked fake because what we're seeing clearly was a, you know, I'll keep going back to the word abstract. It was meant to be this abstract presentation of what was going on, not just the flashback, but also Fisk experiencing it and really taking it in. How about the Little League team logo or mascot or whatever that is on the hat there? Um, and we had been treated at New York Comic Con to a, uh, a a new trailer uh, montage that that we saw that for the very first time. And you know, a little bit later in the panel, they would speak the name Bullseye for the first time. Are these the Brooklyn Bullseyes, Matt? It doesn't need to be. I mean, I guess it is. If what we're, if everything that we're seeing, though stylized, is meant to be Fisk's intake of the truth as presented in those files, yeah, I guess they were the Brooklyn Bullseyes or or the Bullseyes, whatever it might be. If we don't return to that as a nickname for the character. Or with him, if he never wears the hat again, or if he doesn't get a weirdo scar like that, I'll be okay with all that. It was maybe a little, it was a little on the nose for me if he's going to realize, 
a la Miles Morales in uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, you know, I am Bullseye. Like, if he has that moment, then the hat, in retrospect, will have been too much. If this is all we're getting of the Bullseye logo for conceivably the rest of the character's time in the MCU, then it was a nice little, you know, like, hey, if you're not with us already, this is Bullseye dum-dums. I think the best use of the black and white sequence is the therapy sessions, particularly the passage of time from when Dex first comes under the doctor's care to when she is dying. Um, What about the sequence at the end when they're eating pizza and Fisk is in between them? I mean, I loved it just for that, just for that harsh lighting. Um, I am 99% sure as I remember back that though it looks like it is, you know, on the stage, it ends up, they end up going to a close up to Fisk and the lighting changes, I believe in camera. And then we're back on the, back in the penthouse. I could be wrong about that, but I mean, I liked it. I liked that they went for this and as opposed to what could have been a 14 minute mini episode where they've desaturated the color a little bit or they've gotten the equivalent in this episode of father lantum and just for mend his hair like they (laughs) full-on went for this is the very special episode where we find out why dex is the way he is and we're gonna really present it to you in a way where you're clear that this is the past and you're clear that this is a flashback and we're gonna use old-fashioned stage techniques of the three of us stand there and we all the one pretends he can see the other two and the other two can't and it's just light that's all it is it's not set it's not computer effects it's not bringing the stunt double it's just three actors and three lights i i i loved it i absolutely loved it how good a job did they do on casting teenage decks <laughs> I, I could not believe because i was when we see the therapist old it's like all right i know what we're gonna do we're gonna see the decks actor in like a t-shirt that clearly says a long time ago you know it's gonna be like green day green day yep exactly <laughs> something like that it's gonna be the dookie shirt um he's really good at throwing dookie too <laughs> um and it's gonna be like long hair or something like you know or spiky hair something to be Co- like cobain you yeah. know bit mid-length haircut <laughs> um but instead they just found this this phenomenal actor and can, can i mention pete as a side note Hey, good job, therapist. I know that you're facing the mortality of your life, and I don't want to take that away from her, fictional as though she may be, but good job, can we assume Dr. Mercer, Ms. Mercer, um, in your last day as a therapist and in your waning days on Earth, this kid that you've given therapy to for all these many years, his response to your what I'm assuming is cancer, but your terminal condition is I want to kill you because I'm angry at you that you won't be here for me. Like you, you didn't do a good job, Ms. Mercer. As, as great a job they, they did is casting, um, decks in the, in between here, the words they gave him to speak were not really good at all. Um, really? I, I don't think I want to kill you for dying. Really? Really? I, you don't. Th- you don't <laughs> think that's what he's. You don't. Wait, it's well, not poetry, well, man. Well, wait. It's, first of all, it's I want to kill you. Why for dying? Like wasn't wasn't it to that effect? Words to that effect. 
essentially, but just my my point being, what are you feeling? I feel I want to kill you. Why is that? I want you. I want to kill you because you're dying. Y- yes, dummy. You just said this ridiculous thing. <laughs> oh, like, I feel, b- believe me, it it reveals character. Um, I, I just don't quite think it's it's what we expect a character in in this position to say i i I think it was it was very clunky um so she refers at one point uh with dex to something he did the last time he was alone what do you think that was answer that seriously matt Uh, what dex did the last time he was alone not what we might throw out there as humorous answers Pete, I think that the answer, uh, at least by inference, is revealed at the end of the episode. I just think that it was this complete meltdown over something that it can be agreed upon is a small disappointment, or even if it is a large disappointment, a disappointment in life. And as adult Dex tears apart his otherwise completely perfect apartment with every corner squared and every you know everything's black and white, literally, and all of that... Right. Um, I think there was a similar meltdown um, th- that that occurred off screen that uh, that Ms. Mercer was trying to remind him of. I, I mean, to ask a question, what is what is taking an active interest in somebody in do they have a dog as compared to I have stalked you to know you don't have a dog. Um, and of course the way in which, I mean, the dialogue revealing situation at its best in this episode is you don't have a dog. Well, I, I didn't mention that. Oh, you, you did mention that before. Um, we were talking about ballet. Oh, you, you're just assuming it's ballet. I didn't know. Like that's all really, really well written and revealing to the point where I want to kill you for dying. Not so much. So, so um, you are blaming teenage rage-filled <laughs> Dex, who doesn't, who, who, as a teenager, lacks the adult Dex's a experience in life, b socialization with others. Though I have concerns about adult Dex, and uh, c also lacks the ability to fake it when he's not feeling. Right. You know, to, to, to fake normalcy until the normal behaviors return. You're blaming the teenager who lacks all of these skills for being inarticulate and rage filled. Uh, when you put it that way, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, again, I, re- I, I acknowledge that it, it reveals character. I would have had another go at the line, but I'm, I'm not going to sit here and I've, I've criticized a line of dialogue enough. And you know what, Pete, um, that, that little young man is probably listening right now, and he's like, <laughs> oh, man, Uncle Pete says I did a bad job. I guess maybe I shouldn't be an actor anymore. No, I, th- I think I think the actor did a fine job. I think it was uh, – and it's it's me, you know, with my writing hat on. I'll, I'll take my writing hat off for, for, for now. Um, so Julie winds up – just happens, Matt, to wind up working – in the presidential hotel, her first day in that hotel bar as Dex um, working office in the building, getting a drink, duty, 
not on duty? Would she be not on duty in the building? And then how has she gotten this job? I mean, this is clearly Fisk, right? Well, either Fisk or I was thinking more so uh, Dex. Dex himself. I read it more as Dex made this happen behind the scenes, not Fisk. Um, Wow, that's not something I had considered. That's completely how I read it um, in terms of... yeah, he has made this happen. I don't think it's big bad Fisk because at this point. Fisk has just read the file, right? And passage of time is is not clear. You know, it goes from reading a file that they found this woman in a city of eight million people. They've gotten her a job on that very day and engineers this meeting. Like, I mean, my last point, and it speaks to all of this, to have to happen in an episode, in a season of 13 episodes, thank God it's 13, not 10, and to tell this super complex story, the TV shorthand of his relationship with Julie between meeting her at the suicide prevention hotline to all the stuff in the uh well we see him running before uh and watching her interact with the homeless lady she's very clearly a a good and caring person and then what goes on in the bar the restaurant and and then the nightcap later which turns into the awkward thing and and spirals him out of control um in, in like a 53 minute episode I mean, it's an incredibly dense episode. Another dense episode that flies, I might add. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's and and two on on top of this. This might be the most avant-garde episode Marvel mm. TV's ever done. Um. So back to your central your central question there. A, I read it as Dex. Dex the impatient has set this up, and he can't let her settle in for a couple days. It's got to be. Talk to her, you know, when's the best time in her shift towards the end, grab dinner, et cetera, et cetera. I think this was his full impatience uh, shown uh, as to the propriety or lack thereof of him getting a drink in the bar. Here's here's my answer. And again, I know we have listeners like uh, like Robert Frost who have some law enforcement experience out there. Here's my take as a as a lay person when it comes to this stuff though they are in the building where he works it's a little bit different than you know police headquarters and i personally don't see a problem if he is off duty and and you know not expected on duty anytime soon if he's done for the day and and wants to go to the lobby level bar and have a responsible (laughs) a responsible intake of meal and drink uh, before hitting the street, I personally don't see that as any different than if you work at police headquarters when your shift is over and you're done for the day, you want to then go across the street or down down the corner to the bar and have a drink or two. I don't read it as any more or less uh, inappropriate or appropriate. To me, it's, hey, he's done for the day. He's going to hit the nearest bar. And, you know, they're all living slash working out of this hotel. They're spending so much time there. It's as though they are living there. You want to hit If that's the bar you want to hit on the way out, go for it. Yeah, I mean, we could really sit and and you know analyze it. Uh, I I try to think of how I would behave in the situation, and I could see acceptable responses for both. Um, 
it it's an interesting way to do it and then that he describes that they have an office in the building as opposed to yeah the penthouse and but he does say that to her that that fisk is in the penthouse and and she confuses it as working for him which is a very interesting thing that she confuses I did not read that line as her thinking that she that he was an employee of Fisk. I read that more as as she could have interchangeably said for or with. Um, but he immediately takes it as this, no, 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 I'm one of the good guys. I work for the federal government. I'm I'm very, very trustworthy in that regard. Um so I think he kind of misinterpreted what she said and immediately went on the defensive. We've been using our enhanced senses to monitor the frequencies. Here's what you had to say. Pete, we have a hearty email from our pal 084 who has many, many thoughts on uh, on Daredevil episodes 301 through 304. So appreciative that that was, uh, you know, that that was put that way. So that way I didn't need to peer at things I had yet to see. I know we have another email from 084 that we'll read a little bit farther down the line as we get deeper into the series. But let's start with this one, Pete. When I thought, when I found out about the October 19th release for the season, I made sure to take the day off from both jobs <laughs> so I could take it all in. Yeah, I have all of the thoughts. Instead of sending you a 45-page thesis at the very end and breaking it up into chunks, here's what I thought about episodes one through four. First thought, Pete, tense. That's pretty much the gist of it. There's just a palpable air of fear uh, concerning what's going to happen next. The last time we saw Fisk, he had threatened Foggy, which had me wondering which Foggy scene would have him or Marcy brutally murdered. Then there is Matt, who is at his lowest point physically, emotionally, even mentally. He essentially tries to die in the end of episode one, if not for the return of Fisk. And he might have kept on trying otherwise. Your thoughts so far, Pete? All all spot on. The tension in that fourth episode, I mean, super high bar. You hope they could even come close to rivaling that, let alone Matt maybe exceeding it. 084 continues to say, when Matt started seeing visions of Kingpin, I was afraid that maybe all the menace we saw in the trailers from Fisk would come from Matt's head. It would have been interesting but disappointing. Thankfully, by the end of episode four, it's abundantly clear that Fisk is finally a fully grown Kingpin and deliciously evil. Uh, 084 goes on to say, Wilson Bethel doesn't do much as Bullseye except creep us out, but he does an amazing job at it. We know from the trailers exactly who he's going to be, so we're watching his scenes intently. That's another source of tension, anticipating the full villainy to come out of these two antagonists. Lastly, Pete, at least lastly for now, uh, 084 says, That prison sequence. Fisk's revenge is exacted on Murdoch as he's forced to fight his way out with no protective gear and, more importantly, no anonymity. He's forced to show Fisk what he can do or die, and boy, does he show what he can do. Charlie Cox and Chris Brewster are both incredible in this stretch, even though it's a little obvious when each is on screen, like that few minutes before Matt's fall behind the chair where we only see his back. Uh, but we're too tense to care. 
I can't wait to hear your thoughts about Karen and Maggie and the amazing story of Agent Nadim, but most of them come in the later chunks of the season. Can't wait to hear your thoughts as well. Have fun. <laughs> That's the email so far from 084, Pete. Great email. I'll talk about what we can and, you know, the, the prison sequence, we could record entire podcasts just about that. Uh, but what I have to do, I have to go back and watch that and know to look Matt pointed out in the previous podcast episode about um, the the stunt double, Chris Brewster. Um, I have not noticed it on any of the four watchings I've done before this. So to the untrained, quasi-trained eye, I'm not even picking it up. Um, I think it's that good. I think you're pulled in that much. Uh, and once you've seen it, uh, going back and watching it, it's – you know, I, I liken it to uh, as a skateboarder, you know, dropping in a on a half pipe. You, you know what's coming, yet it's an experience every time. Don't forget, Pete, Charlie Cox, handsome fella. When you can see his face, it's him. When Charlie Cox, <laughs> when, when Charlie whoa, Cox. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Are we going to imply here that the, the stunt man is not a handsome dude? I mean, come on. Listen, I'm sure Chris Brewster is a handsome fellow, but guess what? He looks like Chris Brewster. So anytime that Matt Murdock gets thrown around and, oh man, so many kicks to my stomach. I have to cover my face. <laughs> that's probably Chris Brewster. When there's times where it's like, oh geez, getting thrown towards that chair. That's probably Chris Brewster. And then when Matt Murdock comes out on all fours and is like, hey, you see my bloody handsome English face? Uh, uh, bloody is a pun there. Uh, I'm, I'm Charlie Cox. That's it, Pete. It's Pete. When you see the Cox, then you know it's him. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, Pete, Daredevil, it's got the front face. It's got the behind the scenes. That's like Patreon.com. Our patrons are our Chris Brewsters, helping make sure the toughest stuff, the the bandwidth, the storage, the money nonsense, that all gets helped along uh, by uh, those people who have visited Patreon.com/slash Fantastic Geek. Absolutely. Everybody who contributes gets exclusive podcast content, including a 14-minute black and white sequence of the making of Fantastic Geek. <laughs> um, and then there's levels. Disclaimer, that might not be true. <laughs> then there's levels that you can donate and get uh, micro cassettes of uh, Matt's therapy sessions. Uh, those might exist, but they might not be shared. <laughs> Um, but indeed, Pete, they, uh, th they deserve our thanks each and every week. That's why we take the time to do so. And we could not do it without them. Absolutely. You make it all possible. We are 100% uh, listener driven and funded and very, very proud of that. Pete, the freest, bestest thing, though, is to be able to talk to you on Twitter. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,131 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail, like 084 did, by uh, checking us out as uh, Fantastic Geek in those spots as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash fantastic geek with the PH, all one word. Hit us with the thumb. Bullseye that up today. 
Well, Pete, over on the Pop Culture Podcast feed tomorrow, we will be talking more God Friended Me as we continue to uh, to enjoy the the positive, uplifting nature of that series. And then we return to Daredevil, which pulls our souls back down as everyone has scum on their their feet and blood on their hands in some degree so it's kind of like uh you know the two sides there on the pop culture podcast feed if you're just with us though for daredevil that feed of course will update on wednesday as we continue to make our way through this truly excellent season of daredevil absolutely and uh pepper some star trek discovery in there what with the short treks once a month we've done our first um runaway uh we'll be getting to number two in uh just under two weeks matt uh yes absolutely can't wait for, for a minute pete because the the fantastic bounty is so big i was like oh yeah runaway season two i guess pete wants to talk about that but <laughs> you're of course talking about the next short trek yes um and we have runaways uh, too man you want to talk some <laughs> runaways we got all that going on we recorded a new york comic-con uh episode of that hinting at uh, what we saw in the second season premiere that we were shown. So we'll, we will talk uh, Marvel Runaways. We will talk Star Trek Runaway. <laughs> Indeed, Pete. And uh, you've reminded me it's now less than two weeks until the next uh, short trek. So looking forward to that. I think that's the one with the new character. I tried not to watch Super the Super interesting. There's going to be a ton to talk about. Well, Pete, with that time for me to say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word don't forget to vote